been around for uh, the last few months. You know that Justin, who's our lead pastor here, uh, he's been on sabbatical for the summer, and we are excited about uh, about this time for for his family, for he and Jill, for Lucy, as they uh, uh, get to uh, rest and, and refocus and, and be renewed by the gospel himself. And for us, that's meant the summer has looked a little bit different than it normally does. We've been, uh, uh, and and this this Sunday we are we're going to be uh, joined by another a special guest, uh, Clancy Cruz. He's Pastor from uh, from up from Ohio, we're glad to have him. He's going to be with us for the entire month. So we're excited about what God, how God will use him and how he'll uh, uh, speak to us. Uh, how God will use Clancy to speak to us. And, um, and I'm encouraged. Come on, come on, Clancy. Um, I'm encouraged. Uh, encouraged by the message that he had for us uh, during, during the first service. Excited about what uh, what God through His Spirit uh, will will will, uh, will teach us uh, for, for, the, for the whole month. I got to get to know uh, Clancy a little bit uh, this this week, and man, it's a it, He's such an encouragement to be around. Uh, he, uh, you can tell immediately as I'll start uh, talking, his passion for the gospel, his passion for God's people. So I'm excited uh, about our time together. So, Great. Thanks, thanks, man. Clancy. Thank you. Yeah, it is. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. No, it is uh, really, really good to be here. We're very much enjoying our time. Uh, my wife is here, Sandy, and uh, she'll be here for a couple of weeks. So uh, it's very nice to have her here. She's a little bit on jet lag. She got in yesterday, so... Uh, don't fall asleep, honey. It's, it's not a signal to, good signal to send. When, uh... No, so I'd like to get to know you guys a little bit. I did this last hour. Um, it's always good to feel a little bit comfortable, kind of understanding the people a little bit. So uh, I guess the, the church was started around 86. Is that right, Carmen? Do I have that right? So, okay. So how many of you have been part of the church for 30 years? Let me see your hands. Were you, you born here, man? Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I was going to say, you don't look very old. All right. How about 20 years? You've been part of church 20 years now. Let's see your hands. Whoa, okay. All right. What about, okay. What about the last 15 years? You've been part of the church the last 15 years. How about the last 10 years? All right. So things have, the last five years? Wow. Okay. Did I miss something? A lot of hands. One year, last year? Okay. All right. I guess I should have broken it down a little more, but... No, so I met Pastor Justin several years ago at various meetings and conferences. I served as the executive director of our fellowship for a period of time, and, and we would meet up uh, at different places. And then uh, a while ago, I met uh, Carmen and Justin down in California and just, just, just had good connection, and uh, we stayed connected. And then uh, my son and I were coming up here in 2019. Maybe some of you remember when I was here, Father's Day 2019, my son Bryce and I preach while Justin and Jill were off on their honeymoon, and that was a great delight to, to preach to you then. And last year, I finished a three-month sabbatical, and Justin texted me, and he said, hey, can you call me? So I called him, and he said, I understand you just got back from sabbatical. I'm like, yep, just got back from sabbatical. He goes, tell me about it. So I told him all about it. He goes, well, next year, I'm going on a sabbatical. Would you want to come up and be with my church for a whole month? I'm like, well, yeah, but I just got back from three months. I don't know how that's going to land with my church family asking. Well, they said yes, because here I am. And uh, the first line of defense then was my executive pastor, um, who'd been holding the fort down for those three months. And his answer was, why wouldn't you do that? And I'm so like, here I am. And I'm really excited to be here. Um, he's the right guy because he's taking over for me next year. I'll be stepping out of that role. It's a whole story. Maybe I'll get a chance to share a little bit. Uh, with you. So something I want to share with you, and this is a little bit off script, that you guys have something special here. 
You, you really do. I hope you know that. I've been around the country, a little bit around the world, not much, but uh, just a few times I've been here and meeting with your staff and with your elders and getting to know Justin and his family. You really have something special here. Keep it going. We need strong, multiplying churches all over the world, but, but particularly here and in North America. And it's exciting for me to see uh, the young generations here in church and being part. I, I like what I see here because our church back home is really multi-generational. I mean, we have uh, staff members who are full pastors, and they're in their early 20s, and then several in their 30s, and then uh, Jeremy is, is 42, and I'm 61. I'm kind of the old guy, but it's really cool to see the different generations here. And I've been a pastor for 30 years, and I've held just about every position that you can imagine uh, in the church. But being a pastor for 30 years is one thing. One thing that I'm super passionate about and super thankful for is this Tuesday, my wife and I will be married 36 years. So, <clears throat> Yeah, so uh, a part of that story is around 21 years ago, we were called to plant a church in Marysville, Ohio, just outside Columbus. Columbus is right in the middle of the state, if you're not familiar with Ohio. And just outside Columbus was a, a, a county and a city, a city called Marysville. So we were called there to start a brand new church. And uh, a, a dude by the name of Ed Jackson, who used to live up here and do the same thing many years ago, contacted me. And we, he said, we think you're the guy and your family is the right family to come and it was a, a small town, but a growing town. And even today, it's really growing. And, and all the stuff is moving out from Columbus toward us. So there's a, a connection there to Columbus. And uh, today, our church is thriving. Um, it's running uh, near 1,000 every weekend. And we've had a residency and internship program for all of those years, where to date, we've been able to put 15 young men through seminary and all of them are in full-time ministry or planting churches. And we're getting ready to uh, hire a couple of more and we're getting ready to start our fourth church. And, and the only reason I tell you that is, is that may sound pretty, you know, wow. It's just a lot of hard work and a lot of heartache. Church work is not easy work. You've been around church, been around people enough, you know, that it's not easy work. So what you have here, the staff, the potential, the people here, man, keep it going. It, it, can, it can disappear fast if you don't stay faithful to the gospel. I love what I'm hearing from your staff and your leadership. So from an older guy with a little bit of experience, a church that's younger than yours in a way, but uh, it is uh, Really, really exciting to be here. So a little bit more about our family. So we have raised four children. Brandon's our oldest. He and his wife, Laura, have four children. So we have four grandchildren with them. And then our daughter, Bethany, and her husband, Will, live in Louisiana. And they have William and Hattie. And uh, I was in New Orleans just a few weeks ago, and it was like 100 degrees. Yeah, it was awful. You couldn't go from here to the car without changing your shirt. And I'm not joking, it was, it was crazy. So it is nice to breathe some real air up here. So wonderful. Well, our second son, uh, our Bryce, he's our third child. He and his wife, Stephanie, live in our town. Uh, he's our youth pastor at our church. And uh, they have two children, Oliver and Isla. And uh, FaceTime is great. It's just 
very, very good to stay connected. And our son Blake is married to Brooke. He's a pastor in the Columbus area. And my wife Sandy's been a career nurse uh, for uh, longer than I've been a pastor. And now we have a business together with our older son. And, and the reason I give you that context is you kind of want to know who is this guy? You know, what's, what's life dealt him and what's faith been like? So just a little bit about us. And uh, so we're just really, really excited to be here. So let's get into the book of Exodus together. If you would, take your Bible, turn it on, open it up, whatever you do there, and turn to Exodus chapter 4. And I love the fact that Pastor Ross has been in the Old Testament for the past several weeks, and now I'm going to be in the Old Testament. I think that's very, very healthy for a church, very, very healthy for us as believers, because we need to see the God of the Old Testament. We need to see the amazing power and his stories. Listen to how I said that. To see his stories come through the lives of people like Moses and Elijah and David and Daniel and, and Sarah and Esther and so on. We need to see the big movements of God. The Old Testament could be uh, summarized as phenomenal stories. I mean, you have the Genesis account. You have the creation account, to say the least. And then you have the story of Noah and the ark, and you have the flood and the judgment from God there. You have the dramatic and traumatic stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and who could forget David and Saul and David and Goliath and Solomon and all of his glory, all of his wisdom, all of his failure. Last year I taught through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I believe that Solomon had a lot to do with that book if he was not really the author behind the scenes and how he recovered in time to write to humanity and say, don't live the way I did. Don't live the way I did. All the wisdom I had, all the power, all the wealth, it crashed and divided my country and ruined many lives. So we taught about that last summer. So the Old Testament is worthy of our attention. These accounts of the acts of God are epic in proportion and sometimes terrifying. I gave the example of the flood earlier and God brought the judgment of the flood upon the earth because men were engaged, quote, in unending evil, end quote. There was God's condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed by fire from his hand, rained down from heaven. God brought down the walls of Jericho. These are real and terrifying judgments of God. And from these stories, we're reminded of the sobering realities about the character and nature of God. I'm a little bit of a Narnia fan, a bigger fan of C.S. Lewis, and I love the uh, depiction of when the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they ask about Aslan. And they try to describe him, and one of the girls says, is Aslan good? Oh, yes, Mr. Beaver said, he is good, but he is not tame. <laughs> I love the nervous laughter. That's kind of what should happen when our children, and when we look at these stories of the Old Testament, because God is wholly other, though very near to the brokenhearted. One day he will ask everyone for an account of the lives that they've lived. But these stories are not just epic and terrifying, they're relevant. Even today, we can learn so much from these giant stories about humanity in general, about good and evil. And I think especially for young people, you need these big stories. Because this... is not a story. 
They might call it a story, but it's not a story. These things are stories, and they tell you about the God you should know. They tell you about the God you should worship, because you will meet Him one day. These stories can literally reset our minds on the values you once cherished before you wandered, before immorality and indecency crept in and then took hold of your life. Read these stories. See, we learn that God is a God of creation, but He's also a God of purpose and promise. As a matter of fact, if you were to force me to summarize all of the Old Testament with one word, I think I would choose the word promise. I think I would choose the word promise. I want to remind you today, if you love and follow Jesus, if you are a Christian, your faith rests on a very firm foundation. Although what might be built upon that foundation might at times seem unstable, maybe not enough, the foundation is secure because it's based on God's promises. Sin and evil and the things of the world, the headlines, the stories, they can really shake us at times. They can weaken our faith where now we've given in to sin and doubt. We've given in to darkness and depression and deception. The deception that God doesn't care about the brokenhearted. God doesn't care about the prodigal, but He does. But we need to remember that He's not only Father, He's God. So where do I get this idea of promise? It primarily comes from the fact that the Old Testament is structured in large part on several covenants. Some would say promises. They're not difficult to recall if you're even a beginner in regards to the Bible, but God made a covenant with Adam, and he kept it. He made a covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David, and he kept all the stipulations of the covenant, even though every one of those people betrayed God or walked away from God or used God. God didn't fail on his promises. But what's most important to remember about those promises is that every single one, they, they come together to form one immense theme that point to the time when God would bring the true Redeemer, the truer and better Adam, the truer and better Noah, the truer and better on and on the list goes, and that was Jesus, born of a virgin. We can actually follow and feel competent when we open the Old Testament by simply remembering those five names associated with those covenants. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. Every one of those promises, those covenants, was initiated by God, stipulated by God, kept faithful by God, and every one of them has a sign that God gave to prove that he would be faithful. 36 years ago, I put a ring on. It's still on. It's a sign. It hasn't been easy, especially for her. But we're here. And by God's grace, 
more in love than when we started. So what we're going to do over these weekends together is we're going to learn from Moses and Elijah. And I'm going to bring some buckets, if you will, to each of you. And you're going to take some lessons home, hopefully. And those buckets are learning lessons from the stories themselves, just like we've already begun to do. And what can we learn about the character and nature of God or be reminded, sober-minded, of the character and nature of God? Matt, it's happening again. Sorry. You ready? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I get the little tickle out of my throat. <clears> throat. Last hour I did that and it went away for good, so I hope that happens again. What can we learn from the stories themselves? What can we learn about the character and nature of God? What can we learn about how the stories of Moses and Elijah point to the ultimate promise keeper, Jesus? So as we start with the story of Moses, I I think I need to give you a little bit of backdrop. Some of you may be not as familiar as others, and I want to make sure that you have enough context to follow the story, the importance of who this figure was and what he did and, and what his message, well, listen, what his message was and what it wasn't. So the Old Testament teaches that God raised up a singular people, and, and they are the people all the way through the Old Testament story. A people made up of 12 tribes from the ancient family of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Jacob, and Jacob, uh, excuse me, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and he had 12 sons, and they became 12 tribes of Israel. And at a particular time in their history, there was a famine in their land, and Jacob's family went down to Egypt. You know the story of the brothers who sold Joseph down into Egypt? Well, eventually the whole nation were enslaved in Egypt, and there was a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And that Pharaoh became threatened because the people of God had grown up into a mighty people, and he enslaved them then for 400 years. But in time, God raised up a deliverer named Moses. This new Pharaoh decided to kill all the baby boys of the Hebrew slaves. But Moses was saved from this mass infanticide because his mother made a basket of reeds and pitch and floated it down the Nile River. And Moses was pulled from the river and raised in the home of Pharaoh. Acts chapter 7 verse 22 says this, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. So we can be confident in one thing about Moses is that he certainly had the bandwidth the education, the chops, if you will, to write the five books, the first five books of the Old Testament. So Moses was a very important person in God's redemptive story. His life, his law, and his literature all pointing to the ultimate Redeemer. We're going to see next weekend where, where Jesus actually says to his disciples, Moses wrote about me and he knew it. Well, one day Moses believed that he should go and visit his people, the Hebrew slaves, and they were his people after all. And as he went to visit them, an an Egyptian slave master was abusing a Hebrew, and Moses took the law into his own hands. Isn't that interesting? And killed that Egyptian, buried him in the sand. The next day he went back thinking that his people would recognize that he's the deliverer 
Mm-mm. He's made a refugee then because everyone knew what he had done. And for 40 years, he lived in the land of Midian. God humbled him and taught him how to be a shepherd. And then 40 years later, Moses returns from the Midianites to, to Egypt to be the deliverer crafted by God in the wilderness because certain things happen only in the wilderness. So if you're in a wilderness day, don't rush through it. If you're in a time of trial and difficulty and you're desperate to get out, wait, pray, ask for help. Let God do his work in those wilderness days, months, or years. So I want to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 4. And then uh, at the end, when I've read several parts of this story, we want to start pulling out these lessons into our buckets. So in chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, we pick it up where it says, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt, see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go in peace. Some of your versions say, I wish you well. It's a, a, a true blessing. It says a lot about that guy. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. The posse, not all the Egyptians, but the people that were after him, they're off the scene, Moses, you can go back. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, started to go back to Egypt, and he also took the staff of God. Big part of the story. Took the staff of God in his hand. Jump over to chapter 5, verse 1. After Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, he said to them, or they said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, honestly, that should have shocked Pharaoh. Like, what? Gods aren't personal. Gods are idols. God, gods are, are, are levers. Gods are superstitious by which you leverage the fear of people. What do you mean he met with you? I'm reading a little bit into the text, but not much. The God of the Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 3, has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to sacrifice to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues and with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you're stopping them from working. Well, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather it themselves, but require them to make the same number of bricks. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. So Pharaoh is a savvy politician. If he martyrs Moses, he's going to have a slave revolt. So he turns the slaves on them, on Moses. How can I make this exponentially harder on the slave drivers and the foremen 
and the people, and they'll turn on Moses. Smart guy. And it begins to happen. Jump down chapter 5, verse 19. The Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they heard that you can't reduce the number of bricks and you have to go get your own straw. Verse 20. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting for them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Well, Moses turned, but he turned back to God. Verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. We say that sometimes to God, don't we? Right? God, you said this, but this is happening. Wake up. Jump down. See what happens beginning in chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what? What's the word? I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let you go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Now, just casually with me, let your eyes cascade down verses 2 through eight, and look how many times the word I is mentioned. Over and over, God says, and God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I did not make myself known to them. I also, and then again and again and again, and we need to hear that today. God says, I got this. He's not necessarily pleading with us, but he's saying to us, I got this. Don't quit. Don't grumble. And boy, did they end up grumbling, right? All the miracles that God does to deliver them and in the wilderness, they're whining and wandering. Do you have anyone in your family who's a wanderer and whiner? Don't raise your hand. God's got this. But Pharaoh rejects the word of God. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Though I multiply my miracles and signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with a mighty act of judgment. Don't miss that. I will lay a mighty hand on Egypt with a mighty hand of judgment. I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. And Moses He's an old dude, man. He must have been a stud, 80 years old at this time. And he's confronting Aaron. Aaron's 83, right? That's multi-generational right there. But chapter 11 brings us to a very sobering point. So God brings these plagues. How many? Ten, right. The last plague 
is the worst and greatest and most significant at all. And many theologians believe that the reason there were ten plagues is because there were ten main deities in the pantheon of the Egyptians, and the biggest one was Pharaoh himself. He was God to them, and his son would be the next God, and our God takes out other gods. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he does, he will drive you out completely. And so God brings the death angel And all the firstborn of Egypt die. And the only way the Hebrew slaves can save their sons is for each father to lead the family spiritually, to sacrifice a lamb and to take the blood and put it over the doorpost, the blood of the Passover lamb, and spread it on their doors. That's the only way the death angel would pass by. Now remember... All of the Old Testament covenants, this is the one particular to Moses. God said, I'm pointing to one deliverer in the future. But it's very important to remember something at this juncture. God's issue is not with the Egyptian people. It's not with the Egyptian people. I know the history, I I know the theology, but it's not. His issue is with Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. And this is what he says in chapter 12, verse 12. On that same night, I will pass. Whoa. God says, on the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. I will bring judgment. Where? On all the gods of Egypt. That's what the story's about. He says, I am the Lord. Now, with the time that we have remaining and then into next weekend, I want to try to fill your buckets a little bit. What are some lessons that we can learn about God, ourselves, and Jesus? But please hold in mind that these stories are pointing to the ultimate promise of the Messiah who was to come. So what can we learn about God? Number one, God will never, ever, ever settle, not even a fraction, for second place. Never. And he won't settle for comparison. Listen, I say this to my church family all the time, and I know this is being recorded, which is kind of cool. I say this to my church family all the time. When someone says to you, all gods are the same, politely say, no. No. 100% no. Because this is not said about any other god. No religious texts say this about their god or gods. See, when we think of the life of Moses and the story of Exodus, we're tempted to think that, you know, it's just a showdown between these two massive personalities. That's how Hollywood depicted it. How many, uh, every year we would watch uh, Charlton Heston. Any, any Charlton Heston fans out there? You have to be like my age to think about that. But in the Ten Commandments, you know, it's just this epic battle between these two big giant, you know, personalities, you know, mano a mano. Uh, no, it's not what it's about. 
Or maybe it's a human interest story of, of oppressed people and dramatic deliverance from slavery. And that's important. You wouldn't be wrong to think that. But the facts are, this is a story about God revealing himself as the only one true God for all nations. And he will bring down all other gods, either by word or by deed. Exodus and the life of Moses is not primarily about Israelite slaves being delivered. It's not about Israel versus Egypt or Moses versus Pharaoh. What you learn is the story of God versus all other gods. Gods of all time. Scholars point to the fact that this is the first time in recorded history. Don't miss this. Across the board, every nation, every culture, every a decade or millennia, it was never written in the history of mankind until now that this God is not simply a cultural expression of a people group or a regional deity constrained by rivers or time or space. God declares himself, listen, universal. Universal. Every day, everywhere, every time. Theologians also point out at this time that God presents himself in a category which they would call, listen, ethical monotheism. I am not trying to impress you. I'm trying to teach you. All other gods were promiscuous or fertile or kind of dealing with people or contractual with people. This God is not like that. He doesn't need anything, but he gives everything. This is a God who alone does right and just and pure and good and holy and gracious every time. Every act of his nature is perfect and holy and good. No other gods are described that way. They can be described as bad or like B.A., but they're not described like this. He is exclusively holy, righteous, just, and good. He's volitional and intentional and sticks with his plan. He never alters the plan. So when you're witnessing to your friends and family, listen, you do not have to come up with some articulate apologetics. Now, I like that at times. I can use that at times. People who know me know that I love history. I do three things for I do a few things every day. Tell my wife I love her, read the Bible, and read history. Every day. I want to know how we got here in every sense. And that's why, you know, Christians, we, we believe that our God acted and still acts in real history, not myths or legends. So just point people to these stories I love talking to people, witnessing to them, bickering with them a little bit, but I'm always civil, I'm always gracious, because the Bible says this, give an answer for the hope that is within you. Can someone finish it? Give the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. <laughs> wow, she's always listening. <laughs> Who says our phones don't listen? So, point, listen, 
You don't have to be an apologetical genius to witness for Jesus. Just point them to the story. So many times when I'm talking to people, I'll say, wait a minute, question, question, question. Have you read the story of the Exodus and what it describes about God? Well, it's just like all those other myths. You haven't read it. You haven't read it. Just go read it. You're an intellectual. You can read. Go read it. And they read it and they go, whoa. That... You believe in that God? Yeah, with fear and trembling and with love and respect and hope and promise. Right? Right? So today the world just seems not just here, everywhere. I mean, I know there are troubles in your state. We got them too. Addictions, division, depression, suicide. It's everywhere. People lose hope when they don't know there's something better. And we have to show them that if you want something better, you better have something big. And this is big. God is making himself known in all the earth. I'm telling you something God's never done. God has never stood on the edge of heaven and looked down at humanity and just did what your mom does. He's never once done that. Not one time. God's never late, never surprised, and never wrong. Ever. He's the God of promise. His covenants have come together to give us hope. Let me land the plane this way. I really like coming up here. I've been around a little bit. I've gone to some long camping trips in Minnesota and upper Michigan and in northern Canada. And so when I come to Alaska, I feel small, and that's good. That's good. Because I see the grandeur of things I don't see every day. Our county is as flat as that floor. No hills, no lakes, no nothing. Cornfields. The highest elevation in our county is the above ground reservoir. Am I, am, I, am I telling the truth? But when I come here, I get small, and that feels good. When we read these stories, we get small, and that's good. Because sometimes the trials, the difficulties, the valleys, they just seem way bigger. We need to know this is who we love and worship and will one day give an account to. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have given us reminders. They're right there in front of us and though the schedule gets packed and the burdens get heavy and the kids are demanding and life is hard and bills need to be paid and people frustrate us and life doesn't work out, we need to know how big you are, how good you are, how perfect you are, and you always show up. Help us in these weeks together to prepare to get small and to feel better. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said,